And a warm welcome to you if you're visiting or you've only been a few times. Um, I'm the assistant pastor here and it's my absolute privilege to look after our small groups, our welcome, our serving teams, amongst lots of other things. Uh, we are now on week five of our well-being series, so about halfway through. And I must admit, when Julian assigned me the task of spiritual well-being, I was slightly daunted. And so we were away with wonderful friends at the beginning of January in Cornwall, enjoying nature, animals, open fires, lots of good food. And I began thinking what on earth I'd share with you all. There's a few snaps. We were just in the Cornish countryside. It was a lovely time. Uh, I was also actually quite physically unwell at this point, having had, you know, the cold that everybody seems to have had um, and that sort of made its way around the last six weeks or so. I had that and was feeling a bit ropey. Um, so when I found this out, that I was speaking on spiritual well-being, our very wonderful friends, they listened to me as I was sort of externally processing. And one of them said, wow, fantastic. And the other one said, what an easy topic. Uh, I have to let you in on a secret. I didn't necessarily echo those same responses. Uh, so one of my friends suggested that I share with you all about really good spiritual disciplines like praying and reading the Bible, which I hope we can all agree um, are really good steps towards spiritual well-being. And he also suggested we looked at the person of Jesus, which again, I thought was a great option as well. But something in me wanted to dive a little bit deeper and get a little bit more uncomfortable and probably uproot some of the reasons as to why this felt quite big and daunting to me and it might be to you as well. So I began thinking with the idea of health versus well-being. So I thought it'd be a really good place to start here. So what is health? Is it the optimum of condition in regards to our spiritual position or physical, financial, vocational position for that matter too? Is it a goal to reach whereby everything is groovy? Perhaps taking emotional health um, as an example, is it when we feel 100% balanced, have good rest, optimum amounts of fun, zero conflict in our lives, and we're feeling on a nice even keel? <coughs> See, when I thought about health as a visual learner, I thought of a straight line. Unhealthy at one end and healthy at the other. Polar opposites with a sliding scale, binary positions as it were. So in thinking about spiritual health, perhaps at one end we have lack of the fruit of the spirit and at the other end essentially like Jesus status. And that, unsurprisingly, didn't sit right with me uh, either. And I felt there was a lot more to this than a binary approach along a continuum. So what's the alternative then? What even is well-being? Well, Julian shared in our introduction week to this series about shalom and wholeness. Who was here for that? Wonderful. It's a holistic, all-encompassing state of peace. Not a picture-perfect health-type status, but an inner wholeness and a peace about the status of our existence, a sort of centeredness. And perhaps instead of a continuum, we could think about well-being as a circle or a cycle, maybe, with the grounding of Jesus in the middle. 
Or we could think of well-being as uh, a spiral even, with a gradual approach towards wholeness, with Jesus sort of ever-present on the journey with us. I think the idea of wholeness or shalom is really important and helpful when thinking about spiritual well-being. And perhaps this isn't why I felt satisfied with sharing about the really good and really important spiritual practices like reading the Bible, practicing Sabbath, aiming for those fruit of the Spirit and having dedicated time with the Lord. Those things are really important. But what does spiritual well-being look like when everything else is caving in? What about when our physical health takes a battering or our emotional health is really fragile? What does spiritual well-being look like then? Who or what can we look to as an example of spiritual well-being in the storm? So in the midst of my own searching in Cornwall and further into January, I felt the Lord guide me towards the person and account of Job. So Job's an Old Testament book written after the Israelites were exiled, and it's set in the place of us far from Israel. And Job was a guy who wasn't an Israelite, and nor were his friends who pop up frequently in this book. And for many scholars, Job is a bit of an odd addition, as it were, to the Old Testament story. There's very little historical context for theologians to refer to, and the author is unknown as well. Job is also structurally fascinating in its composition. It has a prologue, a main body, and an epilogue. And the phrasing used is related to court and justice, with the first part sort of um, like a courtroom showdown between God the judge, Satan the accuser, and Job, who was a very faithful, innocent, and integrous guy. So to cut a long story short, Job loses pretty much everything in his life, and he becomes incredibly afflicted. His friends come alongside him in the main body of the book, and that's his kind of conversational debate with them, with them trying to encourage him, but they actually do a really bad job. And the book ends with God speaking to Job directly. So what can we learn about spiritual well-being from Job? I'd like to take a few key verses and passages from his story and suggest a few reflections that might be helpful for us today. So when preparing and delving deeper into the story of Job and revisiting the chapters and verses, what struck me was Job's knowledge of God. We know that he wasn't an Israelite, but we can see from his whole journey within the book of Job that he has a good knowledge and previous relationship with God that preceded this really tough time in his life. And when it all went wrong, Job lent on firm truth of what he knew of God's character. I remember once sitting in a Starbucks in Canterbury after secondary school one day with a wonderful, wonderful lady called Lou. And she was the local secondary school's Christian worker and she helped Christians in schools run their CUs and she did workshops. She's amazing. And I remember asking her about praying for people and praying for myself. And I was like, well, how do you know what to say? How did she know so many cool things about God to share in those moments? Was she just like top level prophetic? And Lou shared with me that storing up God's truths in our hearts is one way that we can help kind of be carried through life. 
you can call upon a deposit from years ago when you're experiencing something really tricky now. And when reading Job, I realized that he was armed with a bank of truths that became vital for his sustenance through his tough time. So I'm going to read a few verses from Job. God's wisdom is deep and his power is great. The life of every creature and the breath of all people are in God's hand. If I go to the east, (coughs) God is not there. If I go to the west, I do not see him. When he is at work in the north, I catch no sight of him. When he turns to the south, I cannot see him. But God knows the ways that I take. And when he has tested me, I will come out like gold. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have stayed in his way. I did not turn aside. I have never left the commands he has spoken. I have treasured his words more than my own. I love that last verse, treasuring his words more than our own. In times of uncertainty or in times of joy, how precious is it for our souls and how supportive is it in our spiritual well-being to have the truths of the Lord stored in our hearts? And during this really awful time in Job's life, he clung to the promises that he knew were true. So how, how can we do that? One way is by choosing a word or a verse a year to help build up our knowledge. Some of you may even do my one word. Throw a hand up if you're still doing my one word each year. Excellent. Uh, this year, my own word is submit. And if you don't know what my one word is, you basically choose uh, a word for the year. Rather than having a million very unrealistic New Year's resolutions, you choose one word between you and God to focus on for the year and then an accompanying verse. And uh, funnily enough, before I even knew I was doing this talk, so kind of in December, I'd chosen a, a verse from Job to go along with my word of submit. So it's Job 22, 21 to 22. Submit to God and be at peace with him. In this way, prosperity will come to you. Accept instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. I'd really encourage you to prepare yourself to know the goodness and the truth of God for whatever comes around in life. Spiritual well-being is fueled by knowing God, knowing who he is and knowing what he loves about you. Okay, so moving on. Who here likes crime drama box set series? Lovely. So my husband, Josh, and I, we have very few shows we can both watch and enjoy together. We do, as an aside, really enjoy watching Below Deck, but it's, it's a bit left field for, <laughs> for crime dramas. <laughs> Um, So we typically land on crime dramas um, as a compromise of what to watch together. Um, I would usually like to watch something else, but the the type of crime dramas we watch tend not to be particularly gory or harrowing. They're pretty easy to follow along with, Death in Paradise being one, and a staff favourite, just FYI. Uh, So there's usually a character who has something terrible happen, and then some like super crime detectives or ex-army folk, they pop up and fight the case either for the person or alongside them. And typically, more stuff happens which 
isn't so good. So I actually end up worrying that there won't be a happy ending, despite there always being a happy ending. I'm, I'm in peril in the middle. And what my husband doesn't know, and when he listens to this back on his journey home from work today, he wa- will now know. So, sorry, Josh. I often end up Googling what's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> So I can be, like, adequately prepared for episode number eight when we're kind of, like, halfway through episode five. Yes, sorry. Uh, (laughs) It doesn't spoil his viewing experience. Uh, So now, Job actually, and unfortunately, he didn't have the luxury of Googling his own fate, which, of course, we can't do that either, right? So in the middle of the bad stuff and the grief he felt the overwhelming sadness and the hundreds of questions that he had. What did he do? How did he keep spiritually well in such trials? Well, as I said earlier, he had three friends who came alongside him. And we read in Job 2, 11 to 13. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namamathite, I did practice that, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven nights and seven days. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. What an enormous sacrifice his friends made. They suffered alongside Job in his pain. They put aside their time and their commitments to support Job as he suffered. Friendship, fellowship, and community is important to keep us spiritually well. We're not designed to go about this alone and to experience the lows and the highs of life in silo. And none of the three friends were actually able to provide sound advice to Job, but they were able to sit with him, provide comfort to him when he was at his lowest. And comfort was, as it turns out, the best thing they were able to give. As the story of Job moves on, you hear of Job's questioning his upset at the situation and the how on earth could God let this happen, that those thoughts rose up for Job. Don't forget he was integrous and he was innocent. Job spent time examining his feelings and bringing them before the Lord. He wasn't ashamed at how he felt and he was secure enough to know that God could deal with his emotions. Job also held resolute to that of which he knew about the Lord. His friends began offering suggestions, which frankly probably didn't help that much at all. Eliphaz said, cool if you will, but who will answer you? Zophar's opinion was that Job, well, he must be sinful, else this wouldn't have happened to him. He even came, this is Zophar, came up really helpfully with a list of hypothetical sins that Job must have committed for this to happen. And justice for Job's friends was black and white, Sin equaled punishment. For Job, though, he was honest throughout, and he shared the deepest parts of his heart. I wish my suffering could be weighed and my misery put on scales. I do not have the strength to wait. There is nothing to hope for, so why should I be patient? My friends all laugh at me. When I call on God and expect him to answer me, They laugh at me, even though I am right and innocent. 
What brutal honesty and heartfelt anguish from Job. And in the midst of spiritual, in the midst of darkness, spiritual well-being may not look like reading your Bible at the same time every day, even, you know, with the same reading plan. And it might not look like that when things are going well. But honesty with the Lord is a vital part of our relationship with him. Having honest conversations where we can trust him with our emotions and that deepens trust between us. And honesty can sometimes look like the cries from Job. It can be questioning. It can be filled with visceral emotion. Spiritual well-being in that circle or that spiral only transforms when you allow God to know the depths of your heart. And so a few weeks back, our wonderful kids team, who are upstairs and that way, uh, went through the practice of chat and catch with our big kids who are in reception to year five. So chatting is like the you bit of speaking to God and catching is the him bit of sharing with us. So we typically, with the kids, use the image of throwing a ball and catching it um, for the kids to understand what it's like when God talks with us and we speak with him and listen too. My own big kid, Benji, uh, was chatting away that day on the way home after church, uh, after doing chat and catch, and said to me, Mummy, I prayed to God today and he didn't answer my prayer. Now, I did have a little internal parent panic. I didn't know what I was going to say. And so I said, well, do you mind telling me what you pray for, Benji? And he said, I prayed to God that he would take the clouds away. But look, it's still cloudy and I can't see the sun. Now, that was a Sunday early in January. So I knew that the sun was having a little holiday. He'd be back soon. But for a four-year-old who very sincerely prayed for the clouds to go, my answer would have been really insufficient and much like Job's friends. It would be trying to be helpful, but not very helpful. So I prayed a very, very quick prayer for the Holy Spirit to help me. And I said, well, Benji... What if the fields need the clouds to bring rain so the food can grow and we have yummy vegetables to eat in a few weeks' time? And that wasn't necessarily the best answer, but it is kind of along the same theme that we see in God's response to Job at the end of the book. So again, another few verses. God said, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? When I said, this, is, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Do you know the laws of heaven? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you, here we are? Who gives the ibis wisdom or the rooster understanding? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens when the dust becomes hard and the clods of earth stick together? 
Has anybody ever asked, for a asked a question only for another question to be asked in response? One of my mum's favourites was in reply to the when will dinner be question when I was a kid, and she'd say 99.9% .9 of the time, well, Hannah, how long is a piece of string? And I remember feeling really frustrated by that answer. Now I realise that she probably only wanted five minutes piece. Uh, well, Job did the very same. He had almost an entire book of the Bible asking questions with very unhelpful suggestions from his very well-meaning friends. And instead of a firm answer from the Lord as to why everything was awful, painful, tough, God jumps into the conversation and just provides more questions. But what can we learn from God's response? In his magnificent display of authority over creation and all-knowing omniscience, he tries to bring a bit of divine perspective to Job. God spends many verses sharing with Job the enormity of the world and all its intricacies. And God is giving some context to Job's personal problems. We could see that as just a magnificent display of power from the Lord and nothing more. But to me at least, this shows God's magnitude paralleled to his deeply personal connection to us as individuals, to us as people, to us as his children. What God's reply does do is suggest that there are some things we just don't understand. He spent time with Job, listening and responding in a deliberate and thought-out way. He does identify Job's faithfulness and his integrity. And what does Job do? What would you do in that situation? If you're anything like me, you'd have a mental list of questions to ask the Lord in heaven when that time comes around. But actually, Job honoured the Lord. And he said in chapter 42, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about. Things too wonderful for me. You said, listen and I will speak. I have some questions for you and you must answer them. I had only know, heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. Perhaps it's okay not to know the answers when you know the God of creation hears you, sees you, and he loves you. And it's no secret that here at Sutton Vineyard, we've had a lot of change over the past 18 months or so. We've had some really painful goodbyes and some excellent hellos. We've had times of uncertainty, and we've had times of waiting. We've had times of anticipation and steadfastness. And amongst all of the amazing good stuff, the really, really good stuff happening here, and the painful bits too as a leader and a pastor, I've had my own life lifing away in the background. I've been mum to two small children, a wife to an excellent husband who's often away, a daughter to parents moving hundreds and hundreds of miles away. A friend to precious people hurting and rejoicing in their own lives. And to throw it all on top, I've become a new student too. And in my personal prayer and reflection time, I've spent many a moment asking God all of the questions, searching for the answers and waiting. One thing that has helped me tremendously in these times to keep spiritually honest and spiritually well has been the serenity prayer. You may be familiar with the first verse written by the theologian Niebuhr. 
But I've deliberately included the additional verses here because I feel it really reflects the reality for Job and many of us here. So the serenity prayer goes like this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking as he did this sinful world, as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make things right if I surrender to his will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever and ever in the next. Amen. What a ginormous thing to pray. For wisdom, for acceptance and for surrender. All of the things that that Job experienced in his journey. From the moment that it went wrong, the honesty that Job showed, the trust he had in God, but still hung on despite his understandable protests and his overwhelming grief. The way that Job sought the Lord, was he was not afraid to be honest and to share the realness of his situation and the gradual acceptance of the Lord's perspective. If the worship team can come and join me. I would say that Job's spiritual well-being experienced battles and bruises in his journey. But he chose to stay steadfast and resolute in his knowledge of God's goodness. So just before we worship, Donachi is going to come and play a song for us. This song immediately came to mind way, way back in those Cornish fields on holiday in January. When sharing spiritual disciplines or the person of Jesus didn't seem quite right for me to do today, and maybe it didn't for you too. When life feels a little or a lot like Job's, our spiritual well-being is found in honesty, despair, steadfast trust, prayer, and the goodness of God. So please do take these next few minutes to sit and reflect on the words that Donachi sings. They'll come up on the screen for you to read, or do feel free to close your eyes and to listen to the gentle whisper of the Holy Spirit. Trial or pain. 